My name is Dr. Alan Brown. I'm the immediate past president of the National Lipid Association, and I'm very pleased to be here with Dr. David Davidson, who's a fellow of the NLA and also director of prevention at North Shore Health System. David, great to have you. Alan, thanks so much for having me. So today we're going to be talking about one of the most common diseases. In fact, it is the most common autosomal dominant inherited disorder. And unfortunately, it's uncommonly diagnosed. And that's heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. I'm always stunned how many physicians uh, think they know what the disorder is, but yet think it's a genetic cholesterol abnormality. They don't have much more depth than that. And then secondly, that they don't realize that it's not a very rare disorder. So I know you have some data on that, David, and we hope today that our podcast will shine a light on this very important disorder and the importance of treatment. Right. So that's that's a great point, Alan. So um, the the rate for heterozygous FH is quite common. It's, it's around 1 in 250 people, maybe even more common than that, anywhere from around 1 in 200. So anyone that has any size practice at all at least has someone with heterozygous FH. And identification is, is, is challenging still for, for several reasons. We've got lots of different criteria that we can use to try to diagnose familial hypercholesterolemia, or FH for short. And the most common are the clinical criteria. We often use the Dutch Lipid Clinic criteria, the Simon Broom criteria. These are, these are criteria that rely on the degree of cholesterol elevation, family history, physical exam findings, but also can include genetic testing. That's another big leap that we could make going forward in helping identifying patients is getting more patients genetically confirmed when you have a high clinical suspicion. Okay, well you touched on three or four, I think, critical issues there and I'm going to go into a little more depth with you on all of them. First of all, the prevalence. Not only did we know that almost every doctor has seen one of these in practice, though they may not have recognized the patient had it, but if you go into virtually any restaurant, there's a couple of them in there, right? That'll be true. When we're talking about 1 in 200 or 1 in 250 people, so uh, we, we need to recognize that. If you understand the disorder, you will see those patients. And our experience, I think yours also, is that once doctors understand the disorder, they're shocked how many of them they see over the course of a year, for example. Right, just like so many other things, once you know what the diagnosis is and you start to appreciate it, then you start to recognize it. And then you start helping your patients because the lifelong exposure that these patients have to very high atherogenic particles puts them at very high lifetime risk for uh, atherosclerotic disease and all the events associated with that. So it's important to identify them early and treat them aggressively early. Okay, and I think the other thing that makes physicians and other providers eyes glaze over is that it's a complex thing to diagnose. So you mentioned the Dutch criteria, which is enough to make people's eyes glaze over a little bit. So let's talk about from a clinician standpoint, you know, what would make you suspect that a patient might have FH in simple terms? What should everybody be looking at? The easiest way to get started in my mind is anytime you see anyone with an elevated LDL cholesterol, start thinking about FH. We use the cutoff of 190 milligrams per deciliter as a good starting place. If a patient comes in with an LDL sustained above 190 and any sort of family history, have it high on your differential of something to look for. Yeah, so that's an easy one, you know, especially with a family member with premature atherosclerosis. And it's even easier if you have a first-order relative 
who has similar numbers, right? So if mom or dad had very high cholesterol, total cholesterol is 300 plus and LDL is well over 190, that would certainly increase the likelihood that the patient has familial hypercholesterolemia, correct? Correct, absolutely. So having premature heart disease in the family, very high LDL, and in fact, the higher it gets above 190, the more likely they have the mutation and then a first-order relative. Uh, and then what about the physical findings? Uh, we know that probably less than half of the patients we see with familial hypercholesterolemia have physical findings, but what should doctors look for? Well, according to the Dutch Lipid Clinic, if, if you do find tendons anthomas, that essentially cinches your diagnosis. That'll give you enough points to make the diagnosis. But another very supportive finding, especially in people under 45, is to have a, a corneal arcus, which is a whitening around the iris or the colored part of the eye. And it's there if you look for it. I had a patient last week that had this on exam and helped me make the diagnosis. Yeah, I had an emergency room physician many, many years ago tell me that he was in a study with this new drug, atorvastatin, and that his cholesterol was really high, and that's how he got in the study. And as he was talking to me, I looked in his eyes, and he had corneal arcus, and he was about 38 years old. So I said, I know what you have. So I think early arcus is a big one. The xanthomas... We'd be looking on the extensor surfaces of the hands, right, and the right. Achilles tendons. You really have to feel those Achilles tendons. They don't always look like the pictures in the book where they're really large. Any thoughts on that? I think the, especially the Achilles tendons anthomas, I think once you start looking for it, you will start appreciating it a lot more. And oftentimes when I'm talking to people, I have them reach down and feel my Achilles tendons or, or even their own and say, hey, did you notice how thicker and bumpier and rougher your tendons are than mine? Hey, that's a sign that you've got genetically high cholesterol. Yeah, that's pathognomonic for the disorder. There's a couple other very rare disorders with the tendons and thomas on the Achilles, but in general, you'd be thinking familial hypercholesterolemia if you feel them. And as you already mentioned, that pretty much clinches it with the Dutch criteria. Keep in mind, though, that not all the patients with familial hypercholesterolemia have those anthomas, especially if they've been treated in the past with statins. Correct. I assume yeah, you've I, had the same experience. Yeah, mo most will. Very interesting. So we have a very common disorder. About 90% of them are not diagnosed, interestingly. Can we take a few minutes and talk about why it's so important to make the diagnosis? And then I'd like you to touch on those people who have a genetic mutation and who don't on genetic testing and the differential in risk. I think many practitioners would say, I'm not going to miss somebody with a cholesterol of 350 and an LDL of 220. I'm going to put them on therapy. So why do I need to know that this patient has familial hypercholesterolemia? I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I think, if, first off, for the patient themselves, it's very important to identify this early because, as I mentioned earlier, it's a lifelong exposure to higher atherogenic particles. If you have a, a genetic disease, that means that from day one, you've got higher atherogenic particles. Cumulative exposure of those atherogenic particles is going to make you more susceptible to atherosclerotic events like heart attacks earlier on in life. So the earlier we can identify it, the earlier we can treat it, and the, and the more success we're going to have at preventing disease. Why it's so important to identify the disease from a larger picture is to help out families with what we call cascade screening. I know you've been a, not just an advocate, but a 
but an actual practitioner of cascade screening uh, where you work. And it's so important because what, what cascade screening means is every time you identify a person with a disease or what we call the proband, you're supposed to screen every one of the first degree relatives for the disease because then we can identify them more quickly earlier, get them started on treatment and help save them. And each one of them that you find, you then cascade that screening down and do the first degree relative screening of that subsequent found person. So that's why it's so important to identify both the patient and all of the first degree relatives because it's not just throwing somebody on a statin or waiting till they hit age 50 or wait till they've had an event to start treating them. You've got to start treating these patients early and aggressively. Okay, David. So as usual, you covered a couple of very important points there. Let's dig in a little bit deeper. One of the more important reasons to not only just treat that older patient is to screen their kids, right? Because we now know that it's appropriate to initiate statin therapy in the children if they have the disorder uh, starting at age seven or eight years old. And we also have a lot of safety data using statins in those kids. Correct. A study from the Netherlands showed that if we waited until 18 years old to treat the children with the FH, about 1 in 10 had a cardiovascular event by age 30, which is pretty devastating. Whereas if we treated them at 7 or 8 years old, none of them seemed to have an event by age 30. So early treatment is something I know you believe in. We both talk about this all the time. I have a a terrible memory of a 63-year-old woman who had familial hypercholesterolemia, and I saw her for statin intolerance after she had seen multiple physicians, and I said, do you realize what you have? She said, I have high cholesterol. I said, no, you probably have familial hypercholesterolemia. And I asked her if she had any kids, and she had two daughters in their 30s and a 28-year-old son who was an Army Ranger. So I explained to her why it's so important to check those kids and that they should be on a treatment they should have been on treatment if they got the disorder, and at least get a lipid profile on them. So I think you've heard me tell this story. The two daughters went immediately and got tested. They were fine. The 28-year-old son uh, said, Mom, I've had two physicals with the Army, and they would have told me if my cholesterol was high. And unfortunately, he passed away about a month after that conversation of an acute MI. So that was a devastating thing. It's a story that we all have, or we have similar stories when we manage these patients. So if our audience takes nothing else away from what you said about cascade screening. Don't forget, screen the children if you have a parent with it, that kind of high cholesterol, as well as the brothers and sisters, and sometimes the moms and dads. Then the second thing is there seems to be a fear to start statins in children, especially by adult practitioners, right? Correct. They're a little nervous about it, but they're not nearly as nervous as most pediatricians are who have no exposure to statins, and, they, and they're very uncomfortable using statins. I wonder if that's been your experience and what kind of conversations you'll have with a parent when you find out that their child has FH also. I should add that the criteria are slightly different in children, so can you talk a little bit about how we make the diagnosis in a child of a parent with FH and then what kind of conversations you have to get them comfortable with starting therapy? Correct, yeah. So the LDL cutoff for children is, is lower. We start thinking about it generally when the LDL is above 160 instead of 190. In, in children. As far as the, the conversations go, I, I really try to hammer home this lifetime risk and the fact that statins have been proven safe and they have been proven effective. And if you can decrease the exposure earlier on, it's almost like compounded interest. 
you start earlier, you diminish the exposure over years, and you push that that risk of atherosclerosis back so many years that it's important to start early, and it's safe to start early. And generally, when patients, when, when the parents hear that, they're usually amenable to having their kids start. And what's nice about the kids, too, is you don't have to start them on very high-intensity statins. You can start them on lower or moderate-intensity doses. They're going to derive a significant LDL reduction, and they'll carry that with them for a long time. When you think about that lifelong exposure, a, a moderate reduction over a long period of time has a substantial effect. Yeah, and I think that study from the Netherlands that showed if you start early, you don't get heart disease by age 30. That was a very telling study. I agree with you completely. The kids tend to not have side effects. You start them on 10 milligrams of atorvastatin, and sometimes they get a 50% reduction in their LDL. As they get older, we have to increase the dose and frequently add other medicines uh, as they progress to adulthood. One thing we didn't comment on was the caution in young women that uh, we don't have safety data for statin therapy in women who get pregnant. So we, I often make a point, I always make a point uh, to young women that we're going to treat, even if they're eight or nine, uh, that they should not be on a statin at least four weeks prior to attempting to conceive if they decide to get pregnant when they're older, and that uh, they should stay off the statin until they're done nursing. And I document that in the chart. And I make sure I tell mom and dad that, as well as the patient. And hopefully you have a long-term relationship with that patient and you keep reiterating that as they get into uh, an age where they could potentially get pregnant. That's a very important point. And it also brings up the fact of another reason why to treat so young. Because especially with women, there's likely going to be a period of time where they're not going to be on treatment when they're trying to get pregnant, having kids, breastfeeding. Um, you're gonna have potentially years where you will not be treating. So you have to take advantage of the opportunities when you can and start early. But obviously caution them that when they do start their family planning that they need to come off the statins. Yeah, the other pearl just from bad experiences occasionally that when a woman does decide that it, they want to have a baby, so they go off their statin. You see them a year later, they're still thinking about it. And a year later, they're still thinking about it. So a long time can go by in between stopping statin and truly getting pregnant. So I try to emphasize to them to minimize the time from when they made a decision to attempt to conceive to actually uh, trying to do so. So there aren't many years when they're in their 20s and 30s where they're off drug. Any thoughts on that? I, I agree. I, I just I think, yeah, it's important to start early, caution them about stopping for the shortest duration possible, but also the safest duration for the baby. So great, David. So can you fill us in on a few of the things going on with the Lipid Association with regard to FH? Well, there was just a recently released uh, study talking about the identification of FH um, that I hope all of our listeners heard, highlighting just how few people actually do recognize this disease. And not only the heterozygous version, but even the homozygous version, um, which we used to think was one in a million, um, actually turns out it's more like one in 160,000 to one in 300,000. So you're not necessarily as likely to have a patient that has that, but it's not such a unicorn like we used to think it was where you're never going to come across somebody with homozygous FH. Um, so just a, a lot of new education and awareness about the disease 
early identification, early treatment. And I'd like to steer our listeners to uh, the NLA Foundation website, which is called learnyourlipids.com, where there's a section just on familial hypercholesterolemia. And also the FH Foundation, which is a patient-driven organization, has a tremendous amount of information available. Both tremendous resources for patients. I'm, I'm constantly sending the patients that I identify uh, to these websites for support. And this, I understand there's a recent survey activity that's being done uh, at the NLA. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What the, what the NLA did was they referenced uh, almost all primary care docs, and they saw just how few of them, over half of them, had trouble recognizing the, uh, the disease. And then the cardiologist, unfortunately, didn't do significantly better either, which was a little bit disappointing and surprising that there were still so many gaps in, in awareness, which is why uh, education is so important because we got to get people to, to be more aware so that we can identify and treat. Yeah, I think this is an eye-opening survey. It's not too shocking to many of us. I have a vivid memory of giving a presentation to a primate audience and asking, have any of you seen familial hypercholesterolemia? And I think there were about 600 people in the audience, and I think three people raised their hand. So for anybody out there who's feeling like, boy, I'm embarrassed I don't know this disorder, don't feel bad. It's a common issue, and I think uh, we, David and I, as well as all of our colleagues at the National Lipid Association, are just anxious to have more people understand this common disorder. And all of the points that you brought up today about cascade screening, doing a good physical exam, including feeling Achilles tendons and looking for xanthomas and arcus, and just thinking about it when you see an LDL cholesterol 190 or above. That doesn't make the diagnosis alone. So can you just spend the last couple of minutes talking about if someone does have the ability to get a genetic test, and number one, the prices have come way down, so maybe a little bit about genetic testing. And then what are the implications if you have someone with lipid levels that, that high, but they had a negative genetic test versus a positive genetic test, and how do you think about that? Right, there's a few things there. And the other, the other piece I'll add to that, too, is the uh, electronic medical records now. Prior to 2016, we didn't even have an ICD code for familial hypercholesterolemia. I think having one of those was an important step forward in trying to help physicians identify the disease. And as we start identifying the disease more appropriately and we start capturing these things in the electronic medical record, we'll have a, an even better sense of what the true prevalence and, and gap in identification and treatment are. Now, as far as genetic testing goes, you're right, the costs have come quite come down quite significantly. I think one of the challenges that still exists with genetic testing is, is just access and ease of testing. So I've got a nice setup at my institution where you can just type it into the electronic medical record just as you would uh, type in for a CBC or a lipid panel. But I know that's not the case everywhere. So certainly, if, if you're interested in bringing genetic testing and you have an, an electronic medical record system that's robust, there are ways to incorporate this into your electronic medical record to make it easier to order, because I think that's been a barrier in the past. Cost is still an issue. It's come down quite a bit. I know at our institution, we can often get the, the test for under $200 to get a good, a good comprehensive test under $200. There are some commercially available tests that are more superficial screens that are even less expensive than that. But I think once we 
find easier access to genetic testing, consistently lower costs, and importantly, can get that data discreetly into the electronic medical record so all of the practitioners can see it easily instead of just the ordering practitioner, I think that's really going to help management of the disease going forward. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I was going to point out that for someone with very high LDL with a negative genetic test, they still have about six times the average risk of a cardiovascular event. So the absence of a positive genetic test doesn't rule out very high risk. And it doesn't even rule out some autosomal dominant inheritance. We don't know exactly why about 20% of these patients who clinically look like FH actually have a negative genetic test. Correct. I forgot to touch on that, too. And one of the reasons for that is when you do genetic testing, the metaphor that's often used is, is a library. And if you're trying to cast a really wide net, it's like trying to look at every book in the library. You can't get a really solid look at it. If you do a panel and you're trying to catch a bunch of genes, a handful, like I can go into the reference section or the sport section or the cooking section, you can get a better handle on what's there, but you're still not going to be able to read each one of those books really, really thoroughly. Whereas if you have one specific gene, it's like taking one book out and reading it over and over again. So when you cast a wide net, there are over 1,500 known mutations in the LDL receptor alone. It's hard to really carefully look for each one of those mutations appropriately. So you can often have an abnormality and it's still not picked up on genetic testing. Genetic testing is not black and white. It's not you have it or you don't. There's, there's science behind and there's technique behind the actual process of processing the genome or the, the genetic test that you sample that you get so that you can be confident that the genes that you're looking at are truly pathologic or not which is why cascade screening, if you have identified a mutation, you don't have to go look for LDL receptor, ApoB, PCSK9. You can hone in specifically on the gene that you're looking for and specifically on that mutation, and you're going to have a much higher return than if you cast a wider net and take a superficial look. So that's part of the reason why people can clearly have the clinical diagnosis of FH and still have a genetic test that comes out normal. So a normal genetic test does not rule out genetic heterozygous hypercholesterolemia. Right. I'd like to just point out to our audience that there are several vendors now that can deliver kits to your office, even if you don't draw blood. So you can use saliva testing instead of blood testing or both. And those kits are in prepaid mailers. And again, our out-of-pocket cost, if you had zero insurance, was $249, which has come down in the last four or five years from about $1,200. But as you already pointed out, most patients have no copay or a copay under $100. So I think we could encourage people to have those tests because if their genetic test is positive rather than six times the risk, they have 22 times the risk. So it does uh, portend a much higher risk individual. Those are just some clinical pearls. But uh, any final thoughts uh, for our audience about the importance of understanding familial hypercholesterolemia? I think the key points are it's incredibly common and it's devastating. So be aware, don't be afraid to diagnose it, and don't be afraid to treat it, and don't be afraid to treat it early. Okay, I don't have much to add to that. I, again, would amplify, consider treating the children and getting comfortable with that. 
or working with a pediatrician that is comfortable with the use of statins so that you have a place to refer the children of your patients if you don't want to treat them yourself. And I'd just like to thank Dr. David Davidson for all of your insights today and thank all of you for listening to this podcast. Well, thanks so much, Alan. You know you've been a mentor of mine for a long time, so it was a true pleasure to get to sit down and chat with you. It's a pleasure that you're often a mentor of mine now.